I turn your attention this morning to 1 Samuel chapter 10, and we begin reading in verse 21. 1 Samuel chapter 10 and verse 21. The context of the verses we're going to read is when Israel had asked for a king. Prior to this, God was their king, Jehovah God, and Samuel was the prophet, and the people said they wanted a king like the other nations, and so God um, granted their wish. Even though it was not God's will, it was the will of the people. And so he is instructing Samuel on how to choose this leader, the first king of Israel. Verse 21 of 1 Samuel 10, when he had, he referring to Samuel, had caused the tribe of Benjamin to come near by their families. The family of Matri was taken, and Saul, the son of Kish, was taken, and when they sought him, he could not be found. Therefore they inquired of the Lord further, if the man should yet come thither. And the Lord answered, Behold, he hath hid himself among the stuff. And they ran and fetched him thence. And when he stood among the people, he was higher than any of the people from his shoulders and upward. I want to speak this morning on this subject, the stuff that destroys good people. Stuff that destroys good people. Would you bow your heads and pray? Lord, we are thankful to be in your house today. Thankful for the opportunity for your word that gives us clarity. It helps us to understand, Lord, that you are in the process of saving each and every one of us. I pray now, Lord, as we look into your word, that you would open our hearts and minds to receive your word. Change us, Lord, from the inside out, and we'll give you praise in Jesus' name. Everybody said amen. amen. You may be seated. Thank you for standing. In Daniel chapter 3, we read about um, these three Hebrew children that I know you've heard preached about a lot, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and of course Daniel was, uh, was also part of that group. They were young men that were uh, Hebrew, and they had been taken captive when Israel was taken captive by Babylon. And um, they were uh, young men that uh, were chosen because they were very skilled young men. They were uh, very uh, intelligent. They were leaders, had good attitudes, spirits. They were um, people that uh, were disciplined, and they were very committed to their faith, their sincerely held religious beliefs, and that is that, Hero Israel, the Lord our God is one. And um, as probably was typical then as it is now. There was quite a bit of competition among all these young men, and I'm sure the, the Babylonian young men did not take too kindly to these Hebrews being promoted because they were taken into the palace and given uh, honorable positions, even though they were a Hebrew. And uh, when you read Daniel chapter 3, it talks about how that uh, these young men were very committed, even in their prayer life. And uh, some of the others thought that perhaps they could trip up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego by convincing the king of Babylon, a man by the name of Nebuchadnezzar, 
that he should make a big gold statue of himself and cause music to play and then everybody would bow down in the kingdom and convince Nebuchadnezzar that this would bring unity, no doubt, and um, this would be something that would be positive uh, for the culture. And yet they knew that it would put the three Hebrew children between a rock and a hard place because they bowed down to none other other than Jehovah God. And so King Nebuchadnezzar, I'm sure, as they appealed to his ego, thought this would be a great idea. And he positioned um, the, the best craftsmen to uh, begin to work on this golden statue. And so they did. They built this massive golden statue in the in the image of King Nebuchadnezzar, and they put it up there, and, and uh, they had all the music play, and everybody came together in massive numbers, and they bowed down. And of course, the three Hebrew children, because of their position in the, uh, in the kingdom, in the palace, uh, they were in a very visible place. And so as everyone gathered for this uh, tremendous uh, show of... Um, worship to the king they played the music everybody bowed down but of course the three Hebrew children uh, could not bow down because it was against their religious beliefs well uh, this was clearly seen and uh, the king saw it and uh, others of course in the kingdom and they called the three Hebrew children in and and Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego uh, had to now face the wrath of King Nebuchadnezzar. And they were in a very difficult place because here they were in a strange land. They were at the mercy of the king. They, I'm sure, didn't have all the rights of, of the citizens of, of, of Babylon that others had. And their beliefs were contrary to the culture that they were uh, placed in. And so they were forced in, into this place of having to choose between their commitment to Jehovah God and, and also their, uh, their commitment to their king. And the king had been good to them and had chosen them and had promoted them. But they could not change their faith. And so they stood their ground by not bowing down. And this placed them squarely in the face of the wrath of King Nebuchadnezzar. And the king was so upset. No doubt because he, he, he loved these young men and because he had promoted them. And now he felt totally betrayed by them. Here he had used them even uh, to the, own, uh, the detriment of some of his own countrymen wanting to know why he had been so generous with these Hebrew children. And now the thanks that he gets from this is that they, uh, in a, I'm sure in his mind, it was a, it was a show of defiance. I'm sure, I'm sure he identified it as that, that these three Hebrew children would not bow down as everybody else in the kingdom did. Ones that had not been promoted like he had promoted these three Hebrew children. He, was, he, he felt totally betrayed by it. He had put himself on the line politically. And these three young men now embarrassed him in front of all the kingdom. And so he called them in there and said, what were you thinking? They said, oh, king, we can't bow down to the image. We only bow to Jehovah. He said, don't you know I can take your life? Don't you know who I am? Don't you know? And... You think this God that you're staying loyal to is going to help you from that burning, fiery furnace? Your God can't save you from that. I'm the one that can save you from that. 
They said, we don't know if he'll deliver us or not, but, oh, king, here's what we do know. He is able. <laughs> Sometimes we don't know what the future holds, but here's what we do know. He is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think. And so he said, well, heat it up seven times hotter. This really, I think, was a reflection of his wrath. He was seven times hotter than he had ever been before. And so he said, heat up the fire seven times hotter than it's ever been before. And then the, the guards, the people that are the elite of the, all the soldiers, the secret service of, of King uh, Nebuchadnezzar's guard, he, they bind these, these three uh, young men and they lead them to the fire. And the, the elite soldiers go into the edge of the fire, and as they're throwing them in the fire, the fire is so hot that the men, the soldiers, the guard, they literally die from the heat because that's how hot it is. They have to get close enough where they can throw them in, and no doubt these three young men would immediately perish when they hit the fire because even the ones throwing them in could not survive the heat. And so all of these guards that had been throwing these three Hebrew children in, I don't even know, the Bible doesn't say how many were there, but they all died. They died on the edge of the fire. But the three Hebrew children who are in the midst of the fire are all walking around, talking and conversing. And the king says, did we not throw three in the fire? It looks like there's four in the fire. And the fourth one looks like the son of man. Go and pull them four out. The Bible said when they pull, I imagine nobody wanted to volunteer to go pull them out. As they've already hauled off the people that threw them in. And when they pull them out, the Bible says... The hairs on their arms were not even singed. Isn't it amazing how when God does a work, he does a complete work? I mean, their clothes didn't even smell like smoke. And then King Nebuchadnezzar says, their God is the real deal. Their God is the real deal. But here's what was interesting to me as I, as I considered this story, and that is that the people that were on the edge of the fire died, but the people that were in the midst of the fire were saved. There appears to be a difference between death and deliverance. And the key is this, and this is the spiritual principle that I want to talk to you about today. The spiritual principle is this. If you get fully committed and if you're willing to get in the middle of the fire, you can be saved. You can be delivered. God can save you from drugs and alcohol and pornography and immorality. There is not a vice of the flesh that God can't deliver you from. But if you stay on the edge, it is spiritual suicide. But if you said, I'm going into the middle, I'm going to fully commit to be a worshiper of God. You can be saved. But if you just hang around the edge, you may get some of the splash over, but you're li living a dangerous game. 
because the edge is where you get a false sense of security. Genesis 19 tells us about a guy by the name of Lot who lived in a wicked city, Sodom and Gomorrah. And Lot, the Bible said he sat with the elders of the city in the gate. He'd become sort of a political figure. And he had sort of meshed into where he really had forsaken his position of being a person to stand for righteousness for whatever reason. And so the sin and the wickedness of Son of Gomorrah came up and God being a righteous, holy God had to deal with it. And so he told Abraham, I'm going to have to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. And of course, Abraham knew that Lot and uh, his family lived there. And so he said, Lord, if there would be 50 righteous in the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, would you spare it? And the Lord said, I would. And he said, if there'd be 40 righteous, would you spare it? And he said, yes. Would there be 30? Yes. If there'd be 20? Yes. If there be 10 righteous, Abraham knew he couldn't push him any further. If there be 10 righteous people, would you spare the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah? And the Lord said, I'll spare them. Abraham was counting on Lot to have at least one his family. Because if you look at Lot's family, he had at least 10 in his family. Him and his wife were two. He had um, sons, plural, at least two there. There's four. He had two daughters that were virgins, had not been married. That's six. And then he had two daughters that were married to two sons-in-law. So he had at least 10 people that were in the family. So guess what? Abraham was counting on Lot to at least win your family. And here's the irony of it, folks. If Lot wins his family, the entire city is saved. I'm going to tell you the greatest thing we can do in this community is win our family to the Lord. It'll save the whole city. But Lot, he had abdicated that role. He had totally become involved in the, the, the city politics or whatever, and he had totally gotten away from it. And when they, they came and told him, we're going to destroy the city, I don't even know if he fully believed it. In fact, he told his family, hey, I got visited by some angels. They said, they're going to destroy the city. They said, he is his one that beateth the air. He was like he was a crazy man. Because they had never heard their father preach righteousness. He never heard their father say, this is a wicked land. Somehow had embraced perversion and, and had allowed it to infiltrate all of their lifestyle. He totally acquiesced to culture. And the angels of the Lord said, you got to get out of here. Tomorrow morning, we're going to have to go. You're going to have to get to the mountain. He, oh, the mountain. Oh, the mountain. The mountain. That's a lot of climbing. We're not really mountain people. We're flatland dwellers. They're like, you got to get to the mountain. The mountain's where you got to go. You get to the mountain. The Lord said to go to the mountain. If you go to the mountain, you'll be safe. He says, what about if we just go over to Zor? Zor is not Sodom and Gomorrah. It's well watered. The Bible said it had palm trees. It was a beautiful city. What if we just go to Zor? Okay. You can go to Zor. But that's not what the Lord had told him to do. Just because the Lord allows you to do what's in your heart doesn't mean it's the will of God. So they get to Zor and Lot's wife turns around and looks back because her heart is still in Sodom and Gomorrah. And the Bible says she turns to a pillar of salt. Here's the irony of that. Salt is, is for the purpose of preservation. They were supposed to preserve righteousness in an unholy land. It would have been great if she could have been a pillar of salt 
while she was alive instead of a pillar of salt in her death. God had called us to be the salt of the earth in a city that is a light set on a hill. Ladies and gentlemen, when salt hits something, you put salt on eggs, it changes the taste of eggs. The eggs don't change the taste of the salt. And God hath placed us in this place, in this particular location for such a time as this. Hallelujah. And we ought to be the influencers. We ought to be the one that changes our environment. We ought not be affected by our culture to the point where nobody can even identify whether or not we're a Christian or not. There ought to be something inside of us that says, hey, I'm going to stand for righteousness, whether it's popular or not popular. And so Sodom and Gomorrah is destroyed. Lot's wife dies in the city of Zor because the wicked die in Sodom, but the religious die in Zor. Close enough to feel the heat, but not fully in the fire. Not fully in the will of God. Lot was not delivered until he got to the mountain. But after he lost his wife, he woke up and told his daughters, we got to get to the mountain. We got to get to a place of being fully committed. We can't just stay in Zor. Oh, my friend, we got to be careful that we don't live for God on the edge. That's where you die a spiritual death. I was reading about King Saul this past week, and he's an interesting person. He fell so far from the favor of God. You have to wonder, where were, the, were there any telltale signs early on? Because when you first read the story of Saul, it seems like he started out with such character and humility. The Bible says that he was head and shoulders of all the other men in Israel. He was diligent. He was responsible. He was looking for his father's donkeys. He was respectful. I mean, when Samuel told him to do this and that, he did it. And when he went to see the prophet, he brought him a gift. He was generous. He, he followed instructions. He was anointed. He was the first king of Israel. It looks like from the surface of it that Saul was flawless. In fact, God chose him to be the first king. So I think it is safe to say that at a very minimum, he was a good person. Then you look at a few years later, you can't even recognize him. What happened? I started reading through this, trying to figure out what was going on, and he was this, he was that wonderful, and I'm reading how it all got started, and then... I read this, they're getting ready for the coronation service and, and they're all there and they're all getting ready to have, and they're going through this selection process and the Lord is, is using them, they have Benjamin and then got to, Saul, got to his father Kish and then down to Saul and Saul's the man and where's Saul? He's hiding amongst the stuff. What stuff? The stuff, the, the camping stuff, the, the supplies, the, I don't know where the animals hang out. It's this the stuff didn't describe it. It didn't say specifically what the stuff was. Just stuff. And I always thought that was a sign that, that he was humble and shy and, and didn't seek for this position. But was very reticent about taking on the responsibility. And how that was a, a good thing. And yet when I read it a few days ago, the Lord just had me pause and I read it it's hiding 
amongst the stuff. The biggest day of his life. And yet there's a little indication right here. Something was not quite right. Ended up being the death of Saul. What was it? I think I can show this to you through several things that become more visible as you follow the life of Saul in 1 Samuel. But at this very beginning, we have to at least see this little indicator. And it is this. Saul had trouble being fully committed. He was a good man. He was an honorable man. But he had trouble getting in the fire. He was an edge dweller. He stayed amongst the stuff. He liked to keep his options open. The stuff of vacillation, the stuff of inconsistency, the stuff that doesn't allow you to be fully committed and to get in the midst of the fire, the stuff that's close enough to see it without actually being in it. And it ended up being the death of him, physically and spiritually. But let's look at the spiritual side of it. Once they found him and he was made king, it appears he makes good decisions right away. Um, he's under the anointing of God. He's merciful. There were some people that didn't accept his reign right away. Well, we know him. He's, his dad is a farmer, and Benjamin's the smallest of all the tribes, and that's the king? I mean, there were people right away that just weren't very impressed with the choice of Samuel. And surely, people being people, they probably came up with some conspiracy theories like, well, you know Samuel and Kish are friends, and maybe he got a kickback or something. I don't know. He ain't going to be my king. So the people that were the supporters of King Saul said, you need to take all their life. But yet Saul didn't do it. He showed mercy. Good decisions were being made. He works hard to bring unity in Israel and, and rallies everyone together. There was a group of men from Jabesh Gilead that were threatened by the Ammonites. And they said, you know, we're going to take over and we're going to destroy and, they, and, and, and we're going to humiliate you. And, and they said, well, you know, give us a chance to think about this before we commit to you. And, and if you'll just come out and allow us to humiliate you, you know, we won't destroy your families and all that. And so the... These, these men of Jabesh Gilead were, they were part of Israel, but they were, they were in a difficult place because the Ammonites were a fierce army. And so uh, the word got to King Saul. He'd only been king a little while, but he rallies over 300,000 men and they're able to be victorious. And they all come together and he says, everybody's going to come. We're going to come together as a nation, Israel, Judah, all of us. And we're going to fight. And we're going to preserve these men of Jabesh Gilead. And they did. And they drove the Ammonites back. Everything seems to be going so well. King Saul is making good decisions. Uh, the nation of Israel is uniting together. And only two years as being king and Saul stumbles. He's going to fight against a garrison of Philistines and, and Samuel the prophet is supposed to come and pray and offer a sacrifice before the battle and, and Saul doesn't wait for him. He does it himself. And then when Samuel confronts him and tells him that he has acted foolishly, Saul's response is very telling. 
We pick up the narrative in 1 Samuel 13 and verse 11. And Samuel said, what hast thou done? And Saul said, because I saw that the people were scattered from me and that thou camest not within the days appointed and that the Philistines, he had a lot of excuses, didn't he? And that the Philistines gathered themselves together at Michmash. Therefore said I, now he's replacing the word of the Lord with his own opinion. Therefore said I, the Philistines will come down now upon me to Gilgal, and I've not made supplication on the Lord. I forced myself. I didn't want to do it, but I didn't have a choice. I forced myself, therefore, and offered a burnt offering. Now, before we fully condemn King Saul for doing this, let's stop for just a moment and back up. First of all, everything that King Saul said was true. Samuel had told him to wait seven days, and he had waited seven days, and Samuel was late. And the people were scattered and getting antsy. All of that's true. So when you just look at this on the surface, it doesn't look like it's all that egregious and perhaps even justified. Certainly it was justified in King Saul's mind. But here is what it was rooted in. This is part of the stuff. It was rooted in fear. And ladies and gentlemen, when you are not fully committed, you dwell among the stuff called fear. And I want to say to you today that fear will cause spiritual suicide quicker than anything. Fear will drive you to make decisions that seem rational but are deadly. Fear is not of God. Fear is not of God. The Bible says that he has not given us the spirit of fear, but of love and of power and of a sound mind. But if we don't fully get in the fire, we will live in a perpetual state of fear. Ladies and gentlemen, you can't wake up every day and live in fear that you're not going to go in the rapture and live in fear that God's going to reject you. you got to get up every day and say, this is the day that the Lord has made. I am his child. I have been bought by the blood of Jesus and God is for me. We fear what other people will think. We fear what others will say. We fear failure. Oh, I'd like to get down there and get in the altar and worship with everybody else, but I don't want to mess up my hair. I don't want to be laughed at by my friends. I'm just going to hang out over here with the stuff. I don't even think it's safe being down there on the altar. Not everybody's got on a mask. I don't, I, I don't want to get too crazy. I'm just going to stay on the edge of the fire. There's no reason to get down in the middle of the fire and run around the church like Brother Reyes does. That's ridiculous. Those people must not have been in church long. After you've been in church 30, 40 years like me, you'll learn how to conduct yourself. No, here's what you'll do. You'll learn how to live on the edge of the fire where good people die. 
I'm calling on this East Wind Apostolic Church to say we're going to get in the fire. We're not afraid to fully commit whatever it takes because Jesus is coming back. We fear failure. We fear loss. When you get married, you got to get fully committed. You got to jump in the fire. You can't be married, be on the edge. Well, I love you most of the time. You're in serious trouble. You got to just jump in. You got to be fully committed. If you say, I don't want, I fear being hurt, I fear betrayal, I fear the loss of relationship, then you'll never commit. And you'll be on the edge dwelling with the stuff. Well, I don't know how plain I can get with you this morning. You're looking a little fragile. All the stuff's not going to bring happiness. You're never going to be fulfilled having to go to a bar on Friday night and pick up somebody that you never met and live in fear of a venereal disease. That's not where joy is. That's living on the edge of the fire. you got to get in the middle of it and say, I'm committed to my church. I'm committed to my family. Somebody's got to get in the fire. You're going to stand on the edge of the fire all your life. Or are you going to say, here I am, God. You can count on me. I feel like we started out in the fire and yet the stuff has pulled us back. Pulled us to the edge. Good people. You die on the edge. As long as you're on the edge, living in fear of what everybody else thinks, you lose the power of deliverance. You lose your victory. It's easy for the enemy to pick you off on the edge. Just because you're coming to church doesn't mean you're saved. I'm telling you, I know this from personal experience. I grew up in church, but as a teenager playing the drums on the platform, I was no more spiritual than the man in the moon. Living on the edge of the fire. Dying while other people are being delivered. I'm calling on this church to get in the middle of the fire. To be fully committed. I'm calling on this next generation to say you can count on us. We're not going to live among the stuff. You need a man to fight, you can send me. If God needs a prayer warrior, you can count on me. If the youth leader needs somebody to clean the church, I'll be there. Whatever it's going to be, I'm not going to die among the stuff. You got to get in the middle. You got to get in the smack dab middle. Surrounded by God's people. Say, I'm just afraid. I'm I'm fearful. Fear is just pride with lipstick on. (laughs) We'll say that again because it may not be something we fully have embraced in our vernacular. 
Fear is pride with lipstick on. You can try to dress it up and camouflage it. But it's rooted in pride. And we see that with Saul. At first it just looks like fear. But there's something else that's driving it. It's called pride. Pride. We know pride is a killer. The Bible said it goes before destruction. You can't allow your pride to convince you that you're just an edge dweller because you feel safer there. No, you're just protecting your own ego. It looked like you were being humble, Saul, but you were just protecting your own ego, hiding amongst the stuff. No, God needs somebody who can step away from the stuff and commit and say, I'll fight the giant. I'll fight the giant. Saul couldn't do that because he not only started out amongst the stuff, he lived amongst the stuff. Fear is one of the things. The second one is success. Success. When you read 1 Samuel 14, you'll see that Saul had a tremendous amount of success. He drives back the Ammonites, the Edomites, the Moabites. He's he, he fighting the Philistines. He's winning every battle. He's doing everything he can. And then when you get to the very end of it, it says, whatever he has put his hand to, he spoiled it. But success will cause you to hide amongst the stuff, the stuff of your own arm of flesh. You hide in that land of compromise because success gives you a false sense of security. It'll make you think you don't need God. You can start out on the fire, but you can move to the edge as God continues to bless you. You don't really feel like you need to be that radically sold out. Well, you've got a six-figure income. You've got money in the bank. You've got a nice house and a nice car. Can I remind you that everything can disappear tomorrow? What is your stuff going to do for you? And then we see that Saul is moving to the edge because when you get to the last verse of that chapter, it says this, and I quote, And there was sore war against the Philistines all the day of Saul. And when Saul saw any strong man, he turns to the arm of the flesh as opposed to turning to leaning on the Lord's blessings. When he saw any strong man or any valiant man, he took him unto him. He finds a way now to rest in the false sense of security of man's ability. That's more stuff that'll hurt you. Thinking you can do it on your own. Thinking you don't really need to go to church as often as the church doors are open. Thinking you don't really need to pray every day. Thinking fasting once a week is not really necessary. That's for those crazy radicals that are sold out. But I've learned how to just come to church, enjoy the blessings of God, and then go and dress however I want to dress, hang out wherever I want to hang out, do whatever I want to do, and still step into the fire on the edge and enjoy the singing and enjoy the facility. My friend, you are setting yourself up for spiritual suicide I've heard people say well we don't need all these standards and the dressing and the hair and the dress oh we we just want the blessings of God we don't you understand all those things is what's preserving the blessings of God 
I know it'd be easier for us all to just do whatever's right in our own eyes, but here's what I'm interested in. I'm interested in you and I getting to heaven. I'm not interested in necessarily having the biggest church in Palm Bay or everybody coming here and paying their tithes and us being wealthy. If we're all going to hell, what does it matter? No, I want to be saved. I want you to be saved. And for us to be saved, you got to put a firewall. I'm not going to go there. I'm not going to say that. I'm not hanging out with those people. I'm not going to look like that. Why? Because I want to preserve. Somebody's got to get in the fire. Or has God blessed us so much as a church that we're happy to just live on the edge? Go in and enjoy the wind. And they go back to our comfortable lifestyles. Fear, success, pride, stuff moves us away from the Word of God. Saul just got to the point where he just didn't think he needed it. Started moving back in with the stuff. 1 Samuel 15, 17, and Samuel said, When thou wast little in thine own sight, wast thou not made the head of the tribes of Israel? And the Lord anointed thee king over Israel, and the Lord sent thee on a journey and said, Go and utterly destroy the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them until they be consumed. He has given instructions for a total victory. Wherefore then didst thou not obey the voice of the Lord, but didst fly upon the spoil and did evil in the sight of the Lord? Saul said to Samuel, Yea, I have obeyed the voice of the Lord. And I have gone the way which the Lord sent me and have brought Agag, king of Amalek. Now wait a second. The, the word of the Lord was destroy all the Amalekites, not destroy all of them except the king for you to lead around as a trophy. Here's my little pet on a rope. King Agag, follow along behind you. Ladies and gentlemen, this word of God is full of you having total victory, not you just keeping a little Agag that you can lead around on a rope. God's not wanting to just give you 85% deliverance. God is wanting to give you a complete deliverance. Well, you don't have to live in fear anymore. You don't have to get up every day and wonder whether or not you're going to be able to get out of bed. You ought to get up every day and say, I am going to be a vessel of God, an instrument of praise. Saul just kept Agag and led him around. And he said, then he said, the people took of the spoils, sheep and oxen, the chief of the things. Watch this which should have been utterly destroyed to sacrifice unto the Lord thy God in Gilgal. Now Saul replaces what he thinks is right rather than what the Lord told him to do. I know what the Bible says, but I'm going to do what I think is right. Stuff that destroys good people. Samuel said, Half the Lord is great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifice. Some things are just a sacrifice. It may not be the thing that sends you to hell, but it may be it keeps you from the thing that can send you to hell. 
Hath the Lord his great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices? As it obey in the voice of the Lord. Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice. And to hearken than the fat of rams. Now here's some more stuff he identifies for us. For rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft and stubbornness is as iniquity and idolatry. Because thou hast rejected the word of the Lord, he hath also rejected thee from being king. And Saul said unto Samuel, I have sinned, for I have transgressed the commandment of the Lord and thy words, because I feared, here it is again, the people and obeyed their voice. You've got to decide whether or not you're going to fear God or fear people. Paul said, even so do I speak, not as pleasing man, but pleasing God, which trieth my heart. If you live in fear of people's opinions of you, you will live in the stuff. If you're going to be a man or woman of God, you got to be willing to open up your Bible study, open up your Bible, sit in somebody's dining room table and say, here is what thus saith the word of God. Hmm. There was a message in tongues that went forth on Saturday. Lady sitting around by the third or fourth row of this conference, and I'll never forget what she said in the message in tongues of the Lord speaking through her. But she said this Your dining room table is your pulpit, Bible study is your microphone. Do we have a burden for souls or do we just fear people's opinions of us? Do we close our Bibles? Do we close our Bible studies? We live as Christians with laryngitis, spiritual laryngitis, in a world that's crying for help. We can't open our mouth because of pride and fear. Now, therefore, I pray thee. Saul comes up with this. Pardon my sin and turn again with me that I may worship the Lord. And Samuel said unto Saul, I will not return with thee. For thou hast rejected the word of the Lord, and the Lord hath rejected thee from being king. I'm going to tell you something. Some things you just need to go ahead and finalize it. Say, but oh, pastor, we're supposed to be tolerant of everything and everybody. You're replacing the word of God with a modern philosophy that's not rooted in scripture. You better learn you've got to kill some stuff. And if you let it hang around your home and hang around in your mind, and you think you can listen to this and watch this and everything's going to be fine, I'm going to tell you something. It will kill you. You listen to your pastor this morning. It will kill you. And before long, you'll not even know where you are at or how you got there. You better back up from it all and say, hey, I've been on the edge long enough. I'm getting in the fire. I'm getting in the fight. We've got to get to the mountain. In 1 Samuel 15, 30, Saul says to Samuel, I have sinned, yet honor me now. You see what his God became? The way things appeared, not the way they were. I have sinned. Forgive me, Samuel, so I'll be saved. No. I have sinned. Yet honor me now, I pray thee, before the elders of my people and before Israel. And turn again with me that I may worship the Lord thy God. I just want to go through the motions. And I want it to be a show so everybody can see it. Oh, my friend. What has happened to us? 
if all we do is put on a show for everybody to look at. No, we got to get back down to the nitty gritty. I must be saved for above all else. I must be saved. Pride makes Saul think that obedience is not what matters. What matters is how it appears to the people. I got to protect my image. I got to protect my position. These items forced Saul to the place of rebellion. When you go through fear and success and pride, you end up in rebellion, disobedience. And it's there that God turns away. God gives you over to a reprobate mind, you turn into an animal. What happened with Nebuchadnezzar? Literally became like an ox in the field, eating grass like a wild animal. Saul becomes a wild animal. Once anointed of God, once used to prophesy, now he's tormented with an evil spirit. And they try to soothe it with music and with harp playing and bring David in. And God, what's going to help you? That's putting Band-Aid on a cancer. You've got to get down to the root issue. And the root issue is that I've got to get back on the altar. I've got to put this flesh on the altar. Living on the edge. That's why when Goliath came out there and challenged the armies of Israel, Saul should be the one to go and fight. He's the king. Head and shoulders above all the other men. Mightily used in battle, has defeated the Philistines many times, but now it's hiding amongst the stuff. Yeah, he's got a lot more stuff. The king got a palace full of stuff. And all the men are afraid because now the fear of the leader has gone throughout all the camp. The fear of the leader is based upon the fact that he's lost his spiritual authority. Because if you say to God, I can do it by myself, he'll let you. Try it. The giant comes out, send me a man to fight. Because the enemy's always wanting to challenge armies of God. And all the men run and hide in their tents. And Saul's hiding amongst the stuff. And he's got power and position and prestige, but he has no victory. And he's in hiding once again. Now not Amongst the camping gear, now he's hiding in his palace. Army needs a leader, but Saul cannot help him because he's been on the edge too long. He can't bring deliverance because the stuff has him in the grasp of death. That's the difference between death and deliverance. But here comes David. He's singing, full of faith. He's not hiding amongst the stuff. He's a worshiper. He don't care what anybody thinks. Even his own brothers ridicule. Who do you think you are? You're coming up here. You're just a little errand boy. Just drop off the mozzarella cheese and go back to your smelly sheep. Here's David. Someone who's willing to commit. Someone who's willing to get out in the fire. Woo, you know why David could commit? 
Because David was a worshiper. And when you worship with all of your heart, it will war against the stuff that wants to keep you on the perimeter and keep you in a place of protecting your image and protecting your ego. But if you say, I'm gonna bless the Lord anyhow. I've gone through all kind of junk this week, but I am a child of God and I've got a praise in my mouth. So I'm gonna lift my voice and I'm gonna lift my hands. The stuff can't destroy a worshiper. Because worship can war against your pride and worship will war against your fear. Worship battles the stuff that destroys. Commitment takes on the stuff that destroys and drives it away. It doesn't mean, you can remain standing, I'm coming to a close. It doesn't mean that David does not have any fear. David had fear too. I'm sure. He's a human being. He's got fear doesn't mean that David doesn't have some pride. Because he says three times, what happens to the guy who kills the giant? He said, you're going to get a bag of gold and your dad don't have to pay taxes no more. And you get to marry the king's daughter. David looks over and sees her. That's what I'm talking about. He was a human being too. I'm sure he had some pride too because three times he said, tell me that again. And they tell it to him again and the more he looks at her, the smaller the giant's getting. (laughs) He'd had success. Killed a bear, killed a lion. He was a human being. Dealt with the same stuff that Saul did. But the difference is that David was willing to fully commit. I'm going to get five stones and I'm going out in that battlefield. And if I don't hit them with the first one, I'll hit them with the second one. I'll hit them with the third. I'm not going to be a one and done, one hit wonder. I'm going to stand in there and I'm going to keep swinging until the giant is defeated. They said, David, if you're really going to do this, you got to go see King Saul. And they bring him before King Saul. And Saul looks at him and says, this guy's been a, he's been a warrior from his youth and you're just a youth I know King Saul but God helped me one time when a bear came in and tried to take one of my lambs and God helped me when a lion tried he's going to give me the victory over this uncircumcised Philistine and Saul wants to give him some of his stuff well if you're going to go at least take my armor and my helmet take all my shield and at least take my stuff David very wisely says I don't want your stuff. Be careful that you don't pick up another man's offense and make it your cause. No, I'll pray for you, but I'm not going to let your stuff become my stuff. He shall come up. David said, I've got my victories. 
So I'm going to go on those. And Saul, that armor that you've got, that's armor that God has given you victory in. Can I just say something to this great church? You can't be saved using somebody else's victories. You can't be saved on your grandma's prayers. You can't be saved because your dad's a preacher. You've got to fight your own battles. You've got to get your own bear and your own lion. And you've got to be willing to step out from the stuff and say, I'm going to be a worshiper. I don't care if I'm the last man standing. I'm not afraid of the battle. I challenge this great church. I challenge this generation. Is there anybody that'll get in the fire? Fight the good fight. Sam won't get deliverance. Because once David fights the giant, deliverance is not confined to just him. The whole army, the whole nation is delivered because of one young man that says, I'm not afraid to commit. What could happen if just a handful of people said, I'll get in the fire. You want victory in your house? Get in the fire. Get in the fight. You want deliverance in your finances? Get in the fire. Get familiar with biblical obedience. Pay your tithes and your offerings. You want deliverance from bitterness? Get committed to forgiveness. are you going to get in the fire or are you going to throw other people in the fire I said are you going to get in the fire or are you just going to stand in the land of critiquing everything else sitting in the seat of the scornful casting your opinion out as if it's gospel of what everybody else should do you're going to throw other people in and die on the edge or you're going to get in the fire and say, I don't know what's going to happen, but I know my God is able. Ah! Come on, we need some people that can get in the fire. We need some people that will step out onto the valley of Elah and say, I'll fight the giant. All over this building right now, would you lift your hands and would you lift your voice? I open up this altar to you. And I say to you one more time, God is looking for somebody that'll step out from the stuff. Be a worshiper. Be a worshiper. Here I come, Lord. I haven't been perfect. I've dealt with fear. I've dealt with pride. I've dealt with disobedience. But I'm coming out from this stuff. You've called me for such a time as this. Oh, yes, this is a chosen generation. This is a royal priesthood. He's called you to the kingdom for such a time as this. Oh.
it. That's it. Take a few minutes and make a commitment. God, I'm committed to everything. Not just the stuff I like. Not just the stuff I agree with. But I'm putting it all on the altar of sacrifice. I'm putting it all in your hands, Lord. In the name of Jesus. In the name of Jesus. Hey! 